Are you ready for the most ridiculous internet sports show you have ever seen? Welcome to React, home of the most outrageous and hilarious videos the web has to offer. So join me, Rocky Theus, and my co-host, Raiders Pro Bowl defensive end, Max Crosby, as we invite your favorite athletes, celebrities, influencers, entertainers in for an episode of games, laughs, and of course, the funniest reactions to the wildest web clips out there. Catch Reacts on YouTube, and that is Reacts, R-E-A-X-X. Don't miss it. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Regressing to the mean since 2015. It's the Hockey PDO Cast with your host, Dmitry Filipovich. Welcome to the Hockey PDO Cast. My name is Dmitry Filipovich, and joining is my good buddy Alex Pruitt. Alex, what's going on, man? It's always so soothing, your voice. <laughs> I know I mentioned it last time, but you drop into this, like, I don't know, when you say welcome, that's, mm. I'm just like, yeah, that's yeah I'm we, here. You know how you hear about, like, teams kind of coasting through the end of the regular season, but then flipping the switch come postseason? That's me when, you know, we were, we were having a little chat uh, back and forth uh, before we click record, and as soon as you click that button, you got to get into uh, into podcast mode. You're in it. Yes, I'm in it. Um, let's uh, let's talk about the pre- <laughs> let's talk about the predators, man. You uh, you've been around the team a little bit. You've been hanging out in Nashville, writing some good stories. Um, and honestly, we're recording this on a on a Thursday afternoon, so I don't really want to talk about the Eastern Conference Final because by the time this posts and people listen, uh, it'll all be outdated. And and we'll we'll uh, we'll by the, we don't know who's going to advance right now to play the Predators. But uh, we you don't want you now. don't want to talk about ticket sales. Let's talk about ticket sales. Uh, do you actually want to talk about ticket sales? Hell no. <laughs> well, I do want to. You know, I do want to talk about one thing, and and I think that it's a natural starting point for us here, and it's something that I think you captured really well in your writing about the team, and it's sort of the general vibe around them and uh, the atmosphere at these games. Um, you know, I I went to a regular season game earlier this season. I haven't been any of these postseason ones, but it's been it's been so electric that it's been like kind of transferring through my laptop i'm sitting at home here and every time there's a big hit or a save or a goal it's it's honestly like it's giving me goosebumps the, the hairs in the back of my neck are standing up because it just seems so rowdy and, and i can kind of feel what's going on in there so like what was it like being at those games i i didn't re- i went back and watched game six last night just to mm. prepare for this and i didn't realize how loud the it's all your fault chants are yes when they come through the tv like it made me feel like it was my fault. <laughs> well, I mean, you, listen, you've got what, like, three hundred pound football players just chugging copious amounts of beer at once. You've got yeah. the organist playing WWE theme music, which for for nerds like myself is uh, is awesome to hear. And then you've got seventeen thousand or so people just telling the opposing goalie that it's all his fault and that he sucks. And honestly, like, I, I listen. I never really feel bad for these pro athletes unless there's an injury or something like that. Like, you know, the, 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 the performance comes comes with the territory. But, like, after Jonathan Bernier gave up that early goal, which wasn't even his fault, it went directly off Brandon Montour's skating in. And it felt like Montour was, like, 
targeting that goal. Uh, it was so totally. perfectly executed that it honestly, it actually wasn't even Jonathan Bernier's fault, but it was like two minutes into his first start and he's just having these 17,000 people just, it's not one of those things where I, I, I always think it's kind of a joke when opposing crowds just chant another goalie's name for some reason. And like, I, 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 I don't think that would really even psych you out that much, but like if you're just straight up getting told that it's your fault and you suck, that's like a whole nother level. It's great. I mean, everything about that experience is so delightful, I think. Um, I mean, from the fact that you pay $20 to stand on top of an old beat-up Chevy Malibu and smash it with a sledgehammer with a, with a cowboy hat. Like, mm-hmm. you pay an extra 10 bucks and you get a cowboy hat. Um, <laughs> the You know, the fang finger tradition they've been doing since the beginning where the, the psycho music kind of screeches before a power play and everyone, you know, makes fangs with their fingers, which is like a really kind of silly thing to do. Um, and I think everyone th- there thinks it's a little little kitschy, but it's also kind of fun. Um, I mean, like I, I love the just on their jumbotron, like their font is is super goofy. It's almost like those old like singalongs where like the Mickey Mouse head would like bounce over the lyrics and stuff. Um, that's it's, it feels a little dated, but it's it's part of the experience. And yeah, I mean, I, I don't think the uh, the melding of kind of the Nashville country honky tonk soul and hockey is, is anything new. It's kind of been there since the beginning, but clearly, I mean, every, clearly everyone's noticing it more on a national international level, and, and clearly it's ratcheted up. I mean the the lineup of celebrities who have walked through that door um and you know they're not just kind of sitting there and hanging out they're actually like they're putting them to work you know right. they're they're singing the national anthem or uh john elefante from kansas is coming and playing carry on wayward son during the intermission on the band stage um or yeah i mean the predators like taylor luan is is you know walking down to the glass and he's throwing he's the one throwing the catfish over <laughs> over onto the ice and like you can't really argue when this like giant 300 pound pro bowl left tackle is doing that and when he's leading the charge like how do you not take your cues from that as the rest of the city yeah i was gonna say are you gonna be the person that's gonna stand up and tell him not to do that because i'm certainly not yeah no no you you can't taylor <laughs> I, i'm gonna put my hand here and block no of course not. he just walked he, he told me he walked in and the guy the security guard was like what's in this ice box and he was like a catfish and they was like okay come on in <laughs> it, it, you know what it, it does it feels much more like a like a party or a college atmosphere more than a professional sporting event, and and I say that in in the best way possible. Hundred mm-hmm. percent, yeah. Well, I mean, especially especially hockey too. I think. Yeah. Um, I mean, you, you would probably get this in like a like a European soccer match, and I think some of the, the Europeans on the Predators um, would even go as far as to make that comparison. Um, I heard from a couple of the you know guys born in the continental U.S. or Canada, and they say it's more a little more like college football and like Pekka Rene's calling it a carnival. Um, David Poyle saying it's on fire. I mean, there's no shortage of descriptions um, to kind of characterize the atmosphere there, but it's definitely unlike anything in hockey. Um, you know, I'm sure other buildings are, are just as loud, but uh, at certain times, but I mean, the way this one's constructed, it was built for the NBA. Um, everyone's pretty much on top of you. So uh, James Neal talked about that, I think, after after game four, game three, that, I mean, that's just the way the noise travels in that building. Um, I mean, it's a wonder they don't lead the league in, in too many men penalties. Yeah, and I mean, listen, they're a, they're a really fun team with a great story. I mean, you see that in the way that uh, they've captured the attention and imagination of everyone, and especially on, on hockey Twitter, it feels like they've become sort of the shared bandwagon team throughout this postseason, and that's only been ramping up as they've been winning more games and advancing, and I think that's going to continue regardless of who they play in the, in the, in the Stanley Cup final. But we alluded to... Um, the, the the whole ticket sales thing and everything that's going on with the senators right now, I definitely don't want to talk about that. But I will say yeah. that it's, it's it's interesting to look back at some of the stuff people were writing and saying about Nashville as as a hockey market and whether it could viably sustain an NHL team as recently as like five or six years ago. And you know, people will point to the fact like 
listen, obviously fans are coming to these games now that they're advancing and winning and playing successful hockey. And, but that's, that's kind of the point. It's, it's the whole, if you build it, they'll come. I mean, just look at the attendance numbers for like the Blackhawks pre and post Kane and Taves era. I, I was looking and there were 29th in the league uh, in average yeah. attendance from 2005 to 2007. And no one cared about them. I feel like they weren't even being broadcast uh, locally, their games. And then all of a sudden 2008, 2009, that year they finally break out and, and push the Red Wings and make the Western conference final They're They lead the league in average attendance and that's just how it works. So I, I don't, I don't know. It's, it's, it's silly that this, this whole debate is just like, I'm just, I'm up in arms about, it. I don't even know what to say about it really. I, I don't know. Yeah. I don't really buy that argument either that, uh, I mean, just because you're, if the team's bad, it's not the fans' prerogative to shell out money for a product they don't want to watch. Mm-hmm. Um, they can still be they can still be fans, and the the market can still support a team. Uh, as far as fandom goes, yeah, w- without people getting in seats, if they don't feel like that, they want to spend their hard-earned money on that. Um, I mean, listen, like Nashville, it's, it's been it's a boomtown recently. Um, it wasn't always that way, and. Uh, I think back in the day, if if you were to ask some fans, you know, whether they want to go down to Bridgestone Arena, it it probably wouldn't have been the best use of their money. Um, But that's not to say that that the fandom didn't exist and there was an extremely rabid fan base, you know, dating back from uh, from day one where they had the the Pred Wings fans of, you know, all the the Detroit migrants who came down with the auto industry from there. Um, I mean, this is a fan base that's that's existed um, definitely not in as full a force as we see now. Um, but yeah, I mean, yeah, the, the, the Blackhawks is, is the argument there, I think, right? Like yep. before they drafted Hayes and Kane, they were drawing 11 and 12,000. Um, and you would not in your right mind say that that's not a good hockey market, mm. uh, just because they were putting butts in seats. Um, I think at a certain degree, like you said, yeah, if you build it, they will come and, and it, look, it's all kind of coalesced, uh, at, at this time where, I mean, a couple of years ago, they weren't, they weren't playing the same style under Barry Trotz. And I think a lot of that had to do with, uh, some of the pieces that they had there. Mm. Um, I mean, Johansson's. Clearly, the the best number one center that they've ever had. Um, you know, I talked to David Poyle a little bit about that. They they were never really in a position to, to draft one. Um, I guess after Leguan, probably. Uh, and uh, some of the guys like Ellis and Eckholm coming up through the system, they weren't quite ready. I think when Barry Trotz was there. Um, and you know, as a result, they were kind of known as a defensive team. And then then the switch flipped, and you know, they get a get a new CEO and COO in a couple of years ago, and they kind of revamp. Uh, the in-game entertainment experience, and they they put a lot of money um, investing in a Bridgestone Arena to to make that place look nice every couple of years, and and just everything kind of improves the on-ice product, the off-ice product, the way the team interacts with the community. Um, it all kind of ratcheted up to a new level, and and this is the fruit of it. I mean, this is what we're seeing, and and Nashville for sure deserves all the all the praise and attention it's getting right now. So. I mean, you've got a pretty good sense of this just being around the team and covering them, and I know that you you got some good quality time with David Poyle and wrote about him. I'm I'm always fascinated about, like, with a guy like Poyle, for example. I mean, he's been around the game for so long, and and he'd be accurately described as a as a as a hockey guy or a hockey lifer. But mm-hmm. now he's been on this particular job for nearly 20 seasons now, and you know, you look at. Uh, the general sort of trends that go on with the with the position he's in, and I mean, he's he's the longest tenured GM on the job right now. But I mean, just even some of his peers, uh, I think like twenty three or twenty four of them have been hired since two thousand ten. So just, and he was hired back wow. in ni- nineteen ninety seven, right? So it just kind of shows that there isn't there, there's way less longevity for coaches for sure. But even for GMs, it's tough to to keep that gig for that long of a time because 
pro sports are so cyclical and eventually once the team reaches a downturn someone's going to be blamed for it and it's generally the coach and then the gm and and so on and so forth but with Poyle, i mean he's gotten uh this you know this long leash and this loyalty to do this job and now it's finally starting to manifest manifest itself in a winner but i'm just curious with him because you know, I don't. I don't think he was always considered to be uh, this type of GM that he is now. I mean, he's getting recognized as uh, finalist for the GM of the year, and everyone's heaping all this praise on him. But I, I think if we were having this discussion uh, five, six years ago, we might have been talking about it differently. Like, did something, uh, you know, systematically change with the way he approached doing this job and building this team, or was it just one of those things where? It just kind of takes time, and eventually you you kind of you just strike gold, and you find something that works, and you just keep going down that path. Probably a mix. Um, yeah, I, I wish I had asked him kind of flat out, like, what do you think is different about the way you you manage a team mm-hmm. now compared to I don't know five ten years ago? Um, I mean, clearly he's shown no reservations going after the whales when it comes to the trade market. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's awesome what he's been doing as far as the one for one deals go in recent years. Um, but yeah, I don't know. It's, it's, that's a really interesting question. I mean, he's a guy who, who prides loyalty above all else. Um, I, I, he said something that was very fascinating to me. He said that in his ideal world, you would never make any trades, that you would just draft the guys and maybe you sign them in free agents, but you never have to have that hard conversation where you tell a guy, hey, we're trading, we're, we don't want you because we want this guy a little more. Um, so, I mean, maybe maybe that in, in, informs some of the reason why, you know, the culture there as to why, you know, maybe he's got a long leash in the past. But at, at the same time, these days, uh, he's clearly shown a willingness to adapt um and i think that's something that i think you've, you've talked about this here in the past that um you might not expect that from a guy who's been in the same job for as long as he's had hmm. um just the kind of willingness to to evolve with the landscape and to go after guys who you know might be a, a little undervalued in their old home for you know non-off the ice reasons like johansson and and uh and suban um, and to to say, you know, hey, we, we think that uh, your personality, that your talents will, will jive here in Nashville and we can kind of put you in the, the right position to thrive that you might not have had there in the past. Um, so I, I think a lot of that, a lot of that savvy has come out in recent years. Um, I'm not sure what it was in, in years past that maybe we didn't talk about that. But mm-hmm. I, I mean, they, they've always been a, a tremendous drafting team, I think, mm-hmm. um, you know, getting, getting guys like uh, like Pekka Rene in a round that doesn't exist anymore or, or Patrick Cornick was the last pick of the draft or. Um, you know, I mean, even, you know, taking a chance on a guy like Kimo Tiemann in or, or Joel Ward coming out of the college, uh, Canadian college ranks. Um, I think they've, they've done a pretty good job of, of, you know, finding value at the bottom of the barrel, uh, when their payroll wasn't there. Um, so, you know, maybe part of it's, it's just, they have more resources, um, with the upswing uh, that the, that the city's going through right now with the upswing that their payroll has had in recent years with the new ownership starting in, uh, you know, in like 08 and then coming in with their, uh, kind of all that stuff, all the marketing stuff we talked about with Bridgestone, they mm-hmm. sold out 41 out of 41 for the first time this year. Uh, that might inform it as well that he just has a little more toys to play with it. And, you know, good on, good on ownership for sticking with this guy. Um, I don't think there's a person in hockey who's not happy for David Poyle that he, he finally got his due here. Right. Yeah. I mean, obviously, uh, as you mentioned, we we rarely ever see trades like that. The one for ones in hockey, it feels like uh, just such a conservative sport from the on ice product to the way teams are assembled and the way GMs approach their job. And uh, clearly Poyle uh, has sort of the uh, he's been emboldened, but basically by how long he's been on the job, like it feels like he can kind of 
try and do some of this stuff and it's clearly paid off. But I do think that there has been a little bit of a, whether he'd admit it or not, like you mentioned the adapting and, and how you'd need to do that to stay on the job for this long. And I think it's pretty clear that, you know, they've shifted whether it's been, uh, because of the coach going from Barry Trotz to Peter Laviolette and their systems or what have you to this more sort of fast paced skilled approach where they're taking all these chances on these undersized guys that are all of a sudden killing it for them, whether it's, you know, Kevin Fiala or, or Victor Arvidsson or Pontus Aber, you go on, on down the line and it's just all these totally. guys that can just flat out play hockey and fly regardless of their size. And obviously they have uh, big guys as well, but it's, 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 it's like, it's such a fun uh, exercise just looking at how the team's built because it, it feels like it's so unique compared to some of these other teams that we see around the league. I mean, stylistically, it's perfectly encapsulated in the Subban for Weber trade, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and and not, ju- not just that. I, I look at, well, the other Weber that they brought in. Um, I, I've been very impressed with, with the Yannick Weber-Matt Irwin pairing. Um, I mean, you, you look at them and you think, okay, they're the the top four is going to play 50 minutes a night. we got to do damage to the the uh, the third pair and they're sitting there with like a 65 percent expected goals or whatever um and like 55 percent Corsi in the playoffs i mean they've been they've been doing very great work in a, in a minimal role and I, I think a big reason they work is is because weber is so good at, at moving the puck up and he's uh, i mean i'm here in dc he reminds me a little bit of like a kind of a right-handed nation way where he can just you know he can get the puck up the ice and he can make plays and uh, he just gets the puck out of the zone really quick and and that's you know, that's not a, a third pairing defenseman you'd see from a lot of teams a couple of years ago. Um, but I mean, to to just kind of round out the roster in that way, I think uh, shows a little bit of attention to detail uh, from Poyle on the margins like that. And, you know, that was one thing that came up just from from talking to people around the organization. And, and Poyle laughed about this. He saw one article that kind of called him, I think it was called him a riverboat gambler. And he was saying, <laughs> like, well, I, I'd like to think that I have a little more. Uh, attention to detail put a little more thought into that and and you talk to people in the organization there's no one who's more detailed than david Poyle. um i mean he's walking around with like a legal pad every day that has a list of of tasks for like everyone who's underneath him to complete um and that's ranging from you know go to this meeting about renovations for the practice facility to you know do research on this player or whatever um and i, I wrote this in the story to the point that that ray shiro when he was there he would start sneaking looks at the list when david Poyle was in the bathroom because he was like so scared that he was going to miss anything and, and he always missed something because david just had everything everything there on that list um so i think yeah so i, I think the image of him i think the image uh, that he's kind of cultivated for himself recently is this like run and gun uh you know throw all your chips on the table kind of gambler uh humors him to a little bit uh but at the same time i think he gets it because uh, like you said you, you don't go flipping seth jones's and shea weber's uh for a single return coming back a lot, not just in hockey and really any sport. I mean, one for one trades are rare regardless of the landscape. Well, I mean, you're really putting yourself on the line because it doesn't, if it doesn't work out, you can like directly point to the lineage of where it went wrong. So it's hundred percent asses on the line with it. Um, I know you wanted to, to share a little story about David Poyle's uh, dietary <laughs> habits or, or, or uh, what he does at, at, at team functions. Sure. So oh, I don't know how common this is within other organizations, but uh, Nashville has like, pretty regular staff wide barbecues where everyone from like the ticketing department to you know it to david Poyle and and up and up they'll come out and they'll hang out and have a little barbecue and, and they did this after they clinched against st louis the monday after i think they clinched on a sunday uh that monday everyone shows up and you know it was shorts and t-shirt dress code because they had just won and uh they go up to the the garage the top of the garage and they have a barbecue and, and i was told that that one thing happens specifically at every single of these things or most of these things and it's that david poyle is is at the dessert tent and paul finn specifically said it has to be chocolate um <laughs> and that came to mind 
two things recently. One was that he, he was quoted as saying how he was going to spend Game 7 tonight of Pittsburgh-Ottawa, and he was just going to watch with a big bowl of chocolate ice cream. Um, and then two was Shiro told me a story where they were coming down from the press box during a, after a game uh, during their inaugural season, and they were going to see Barry Trotz and the coaching staff, and David Poyle stops, and he goes in the wives' room, and Ray's sitting there like, okay, what the heck's happening right now? Um, and David comes out and goes, they're out of chocolate chip cookies. Like He was very distraught. He's like, we need to go get them chocolate chip cookies in the wives' room, um, which, you know, on the one hand, attention to detail. On the other hand, dude's clearly got a sweet tooth, so... Yes, <laughs> it's clearly uh, that's that's an awesome story, Ben. Let's uh, let's shift gears a little bit here to to Peter Laviolette because uh, there definitely is with all these successful franchises, there is a needs to be a marriage between uh, the guy putting the team together and the guy who's going to be using those players. Otherwise, it's not really going to work. And um, we mentioned that under Barry Trotz in previous years, they were playing this more uh, methodical, slow, defensive hockey style. And, and under Peter Laviolette, they've definitely opened it up. And I was reading this fascinating feature on him in the Tennessean a few days ago, and the common theme in it was this idea that you know, what one thing he has going for him as a coach is that he's a master motivator. And, uh, yeah. we, we, you know, we can, we can get into that. I, I can't necessarily speak to it myself because he's never pumped me up for anything. I mean, his celebrations after goals on the bench look pretty, pretty exciting. So I'm, <laughs> I'd want to make him feel that way, I'm sure, if I was a player. But there's also this innate ability he seems to possess that to get everyone to just buy into what he's selling with regards to a system and how he wants them to play. And you definitely see that watching this Predators team on the ice where it is all about pace and just whenever you get the puck, just go, 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 regardless of uh, who you are, whether you're you know, a, a top-line player, a top-pairing guy, or whether you're a third, fourth-liner. It seems like they play the same way throughout, regardless of their skill level or what their role in the team is. And um, I think that that is something that has definitely stuck out to me watching them. And it's, you know, when we discuss coaches in this league, it's so difficult to actually properly evaluate them because you can, uh, you can, you can make judgments based on who they're playing and how often they're playing them or whether they're using the right combinations. But there is all this stuff behind the scenes or all of this groundwork that needs to go into it before we even see them hit the ice that is such a big part of the job that we just don't really often get to see yeah I, that article by joe rexford i think was yep. phenomenal yep. um yeah it, it got at a central tenant i think of what people in nashville or players in nashville like about playing under peter um which is that that motivational style so i remember talking to Vern fiddler who you know has been scratched a decent amount in the playoffs before the injuries and he was saying like he goes home and is all jacked up and he knows he's not playing that night but he goes home and like man i'm fired up right now because of this speech <laughs> that this guy gave um I know at least a couple times during the season he's had his video staff cut like, you know, rocking highlight pump up video highlights set to like thumping music. And like he likes to play those in the locker room um, just to get everyone jazzed up and make sure it's like everyone's included and everyone's featured at least once. Uh, so, I mean, that's that's kind of a silly way. But um, I remember I think it was I think PK did a podcast with Bill Simmons recently where he was he was talking about Peter um, and was, yeah, kind of brought this up that that in hockey you know, uh, to a certain degree, uh, a lot of it's just kind of up to the, the whims of the players and, and kind of the flukiness of the sport. So uh, maybe motivation and mo- maybe getting guys to buy in to the system, it takes a larger percentage of, of a coach's responsibility than it might in other sports. Um, and, and Peter clearly has that in Nashville. Um, kind of what emphasizes it for me is the way that, that as a group, they can kind of toggle back and forth between playing that that go, go, go style. And I mean, you saw in the Chicago series, I think they they at times would be just as stifling in the neutral zone with a one three one as Ottawa could be. Um, and, and they seem very good at being able to kind of flip the script based on the situation, the game. And I think a lot of that probably stems from Peter. Yeah. And, and 
like in just in terms of the system and it's it is sometimes so tough to uh separate you know what a, a player's actual uh true ability or true talent level is or compared to what maybe the coaching staff is asking him to do and you see um, yeah. with with this predators team especially with the blue line like something i really look at is is breakouts and, and zone exits and uh, you know, obviously, you're not not every time is going to result in this clean, crisp pass that's going to lead to a to a odd man uh, scoring opportunity on the other end of the ice. But it does seem like all the guys, whether it is PK Subban and, and Matthias Ekholm or Matt Irwin and Yannick Weber, like they have this mandate to uh, do something purposeful with the puck whenever they have it, even if they're under pressure, where they're not just going off the off the off the boards and out and just kind of relenting pre- possession like that. They're actually making a concerted effort into an open sheet of ice where one of their speedier forwards can go and get it and that's sort of where the coaching component ties into it because I'm sure that you know you'd watch P.K. Subban under a guy like Michelle Therrien and it was clear that at times he was being told to do a certain thing that wasn't uh, conducive to the way he really optimally should be playing and then he comes to Nashville plays under a guy like Peter Laviolette who lets him do his thing and all of a sudden the results are are kind of speaking for themselves yeah I remember talking to Ryan Johansson um, I think I was there in like late September writing about PK and we were talking to Ryan about just the adjustment coming to Nashville and he said a big a big difference was that you know Peter was very very encouraging to let him be himself and you know you can talk about the old coach that he had in Columbus um, and I think clearly there was a lot of tension there and a, a lot of friction between Ryan and, and Torts um, but you know coming down to, to Nashville I think he, he was very happy with the way that that they just kind of embraced him and you know he can kind of come come off as a little laid back and that you know maybe rub, rubs a certain uh, section of, of hockey folk the wrong way um, but I mean clearly there's a lot of talent there and I think that just kind of speaks to, to Peter's ability to, to tap into that and, um, in, in different personalities so um, but yeah I mean, to, to get back to what you're saying about the defense um, I mean I, I'm a little bummed that we don't get to watch Anaheim and Nashville's defense up against each other anymore mm-hmm. um, just I mean that was just that was just breakout porn there. That's just the way both of those, <laughs> the way both of those teams were able to exit the zone. Um, I mean, watching guys like Montour and Fowler on that end. And then there, there was one play, I think in the second period of game six against Anaheim, where I think like Ekholm got the puck on the left. I don't even remember this. He got the puck on the left point, And then he just kind of like danced into the middle with his back in the slot. And it was like very Subban esque in a way. Um, and then he gets below the dot and then he cuts up and then he, he winds up, at the top of the circle firing a shot between two guys and gets a chance just because it's, it's hockey and it like, you know, hits a run on the ice and rolls to the net. And uh, I don't know, maybe he's been a little Subban influence there, but like, that's, I mean, that's a very freelancing play for, for Matthias Ekholm to make. And, and I think that's totally encouraged within that system that if you, you do what you feel uh, has puts us in the best chance to score. And, and whether that's, you know, defenseman pinching, whether that's Subban, you know, or Ellis coming in on the right side and, and reading the play and, uh, jumping up and trying to keep the puck in the zone or, um, you know, whether that's a guy like Ekholm doing something that you might not might not expect and, and really showing off his offensive ability in a way that, that I feel like uh, the, the larger audience may not talk about him. Um, that's been a real a real great pleasure in this, these playoffs is to kind of see that, that D and, and the way the, the freedom that they have to, to make plays. Yeah, well, that's going to be the big storyline. I mean, spinning it forward to whoever they're playing in the Stanley Cup final, it's going to be uh, whether this blue line can compensate for the injuries they've had up front, especially down the middle. And yeah. uh, the thing is that, you know, if anyone is capable of doing it, it feels like this team is uniquely positioned to do so because, listen, if they're going to go, 
if they're going to have two of Subban at home, Ellis and Yossi on the ice for like 50 to 52 of the 60 minutes they're playing, uh, it's a pretty good starting point regardless of who, of who you have up front. And uh, obviously all those guys can chip in offensively, but can also just make life so much easier for, for the guys they're passing it to. So just seeing uh, like whether they're actually capable of bridging that gap or whether it's going to be a bit too much to ask for them is going to be like ultimately what I think determines how this uh, Stanley Cup final is going to play out. Yeah, I mean, because God bless Colton Sissons, he's not getting a hat trick every single game. Um, I mean, Fisher coming back will help, but I, I, I thought that I mean, in Game Six, Anaheim whoppingly outshot them uh, for most of the game, and and I thought that they were they had a couple chances where they were able to enter the zone up the middle of the ice a little a little too easily than you like. Um, so I think that's going to be a big storyline, especially if it's Pittsburgh, because um, I mean, with the D that that Pittsburgh's been icing and, and the way they've been able to compensate for the injuries on the back end in the playoffs. Uh, it's going to kind of be the reverse, I think, in Nashville a little bit. That Nashville's strength is the D, and they're the ones that are propping up uh, the forwards. And then it's maybe a little bit the reverse in Pittsburgh, where uh, they don't have to rely on their D as much because of the great forwards that they have. Um, but at, at the same time, I mean, some of the guys that they do have left and some of the people they've inserted in the lineup, uh, was impressed with Goudreau, um, was impressed with Aberg. And I, I think, did I pronounce that right? Aberg, uh, yeah. I think it's Aberg. 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 Okay. Aberg. Yeah. Okay. Wonderful, wonderful name. Hmm. Um, I mean, they, they're clearly okay with, with chipping the puck out of the zone as well and letting those guys go get it. Yes. Um, and I think in turn, if you get the puck deep like that and, and you get control below the goal line, that allows your D to also jump up um, in, in a way that's, you know, they're not necessarily carrying the puck in the zone and driving the rush like that, but they're the ones that are kind of trailing and kind of pick kind of pick their spots and pick their lanes. And, and you know, all four of those guys in their top four are, are, I think, excellent at making reads and getting into space and getting, you know, shots through lanes. Well, I mean, stylistically, it's 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 a fascinating matchup if it is against the Penguins because it does feel like there are some... Uh some some parallels to especially that Penguins team last season that was just so effective with how uh, they seemed to kind of thrive off of playing this frantic pace that the other team just couldn't seem to calibrate to or adjust to themselves where they were just like it, it was it's one thing to kind of skate fast but it's another thing to play fast and it seemed like they would never kind of stop and take the puck behind their net and try to regroup and make these you know slow methodical decisions it would always just be as soon as anyone gets the puck just turn around and fling it up in the air and just use your speed to go and get it and the Predators do have a little bit in that, a little bit of that in them. So kind of seeing those two teams go head to head would be, I think, a fascinating stylistic matchup. Definitely. And they're, you know, they're catching Pittsburgh at a very different time than they were last year. Right. For yes. sure. Um, so, yeah, I'd be interested to see. I'd be interested to ask some Penguins um, if they see a little bit of themselves. Let me ask you something about Nashville, though. Yeah. On their power play, do they have another entry other than a drop pass? Oh, man. Um their power play is has been uh worrisome all season not just not just uh in these playoffs it's it's interesting because i i feel like we generally uh look at you know shot totals uh and whether it's for defensemen or for forwards and you just you assume that having a higher shot rate is always a good thing but i think that in the case of defensemen, sometimes you know taking those lower percentage shots from from the corners of the point aren't necessarily the best tactic, especially on the power play. And uh, the Predators are so reliant on on their defensemen to make stuff happen for them on the man advantage that maybe that has a little bit to do with it. I I, I don't know. I, I know that you know a guy like Tyler Dello, for example, has definitely uh, illustrated some issues that they have schematically with it. So I don't know if there's anything you can do at this point in the season with that. It might be something that they're going to have to look into heading into next year. But it definitely is something to keep an eye on yeah i don't know nearly enough about you know hockey stat but i, I was reading Dello's feed recently as well and that kind of got me thinking that and you know watching game six just it's, they had that five minute power play after richie's 
uh, Richie's major, and I don't think they got a, a single shot on goal out of that one. I think a lot of their problems were, were just because you know the Ducks could stack up at the blue line, and, yep. and it was just very hard for them to enter the zone when you your your forward comes up and then he drops it back to a guy in the middle who then has the option to drop it back again to two other guys, and, mm-hmm. and they're just kind of sitting there like, okay, we'll we'll wait for you then. Either you hard rim it, either you hard rim it, or we get a stick on it when you try to enter the zone. So I don't know. Yeah, it seemed to me that you know when when you're trying to direct everything uh, through the D um, at the top of the zone, you got to find a way to get it in and then get it back to them because um, otherwise it, you're just not going to be able to get set up. Yeah, I, I, I kind of want to have a little bit of a discussion here about PK Subban because it definitely does feel like uh, I don't know. It, it, it's uh, you'd think at this point people would just kind of appreciate what's going on right now but there is still this there's this weird pushback now where it's like yeah of course pk suban's being successful and he looks great in nashville but that's only because he doesn't have nearly as much on his plate and he's not the best guy on this team and it's like i i listen i love roman yossi i love what he does i love what he's capable of he's such a modern day nhl defenseman but for someone to think that pk suban isn't the best defenseman on this team just blows my mind i mean listen he's he he plays the most against the other team's best guys, and he does the best in those minutes. Like, I don't know what other classification you could possibly have to determine whether a guy is a number one defenseman or not, but it seems like he's checking all the boxes. Yeah, and the argument, I think, for anyone above him is not Yossi, it's Ekholm, right? No, I've seen a lot of uh, I've seen a lot of well, actually, Roman Yossi is their best defenseman just because he's you know he's stacking up the points and he when he does something well, it does look so dynamic and highlight real worthy. But I think there's a big segment of the game that people are just kind of willingly overlooking because it doesn't fit the story that they want to tell. Sure. Sure. I mean, number one, who cares? They have two top pairs. Yes. Um, they're tremendous to watch. Uh, number two. Yeah. I mean, you look at the matchups that PK and Echol have had to get in his playoffs. I mean, they're going up, they went up against Taves. They went up against Tarasenko. They went up against Gesloff, mm-hmm. um, and did a tremendous job against them. I think they're at, uh, I think their even straight goal differential together is like nine to three. They're at like fifty four percent Corsi four. Yep. Um, and Ellis and Yossi are are right around I think fifty percent. I mean their Corsi is, is pretty low. I think it's be- well below fifty if I'm not mistaken in the playoffs. Mm-hmm. Um, you know their goal differential is like ten to ten or something. So um, I mean they've been they've been all right. But I think just I mean the matchups that that Subban and Ekholm are getting once you factor those in, it's 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 very hard to look at the uh look at the numbers and look at the body of work they put together and not say that they're they've been doing the best job there um and yeah i mean maybe the the point totals aren't there for pk he's still leading the team by far in power play assists um and he's he's still a very dangerous shot i think you saw in in, uh games three and four there in nashville against anaheim um i've been i've been impressed in particular with the way he's been able to kind of wait out uh, some of the shot blocking that you know it's when you're teeing one up from deep especially in this day and age it's it's hard to get the puck through the lane i think pk's done a very good job at, at just kind of waiting and waiting um and and you know almost baiting the 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 you know f1 or f2 on the on the uh, penalty kill into uh, making a move and then you know being able to get the shot through there so i mean just someone like that i think just kind of shows his, his hockey savvy um but yeah i mean in the defensive zone like okay he's he's not you know, I, I don't know what is the argument. Like, what's the argument there well, that that Yossi has more points? It's 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 super bizarre to me because um, it, it, the way people uh, characterize PK Subban as a player sometimes makes me think that they actually haven't really watched PK Subban play hockey because like he's sure. characterizes this offensive defenseman who's sometimes a bit too risky, and you know sometimes he definitely does try to do some stuff with a puck that that might be ill advised. But like you take the those potential turnovers with the fact that. Uh, exceedingly large percentage of the time he's making something happen out of nothing and then on the other end of things like 
he's easily the be- this team's best defenseman at you know protecting his own blue line and making the other team dump the puck in or forcing turnovers. So I just don't see this argument where he's uh, a defensive liability. Like it doesn't match up in the eye test, and it definitely doesn't match up in the numbers. And I I, I don't know. I think I I, I I'm. I'm lost for why people uh, still don't just recognize the the talent he is and what he's contributing to this team. But you know, it's it, 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 sometimes it's, I guess that it's just tough for people to admit that they've been horribly wrong. And we're gonna get into we're gonna talk about Pekarena here, an example, and I'm gonna uh, talk about how I was wrong about him heading into the playoffs. So I, I, it's it's it all just comes to the territory. Like it's in this job, sometimes you're gonna be right, sometimes you're gonna be wrong. You just gotta kind of with new information as it presents itself, you adjust accordingly. Maybe it's, I don't know, maybe it's just that lingering urge to knock PK down a peg. I don't know. Well, he's having too much fun out there, Alex. He's having too much fun. David Boyle, I, he and I talked about that, about the dancing thing. He's, I think his quote was like, he's running around like a madman out there. Like, you don't think he's jazzed up? He's he's gonna he's about to, like, knock everyone over on his own team when he's going around and, like, you know, buzzing around during warm-ups, and all of a sudden he's dancing, and, and that's an issue. He dances, like, every game. I mean, Pecorine's you know, flipping the puck on his stick and catching it behind his back. No, no one's angry about that. Yeah. Well, like, is there any argument at this point to be made against PK Subban being like the clear runaway favorite to be the the face of the NHL as a whole? Like it's, does anyone else have a better combination of just like being charismatic and also just embodying everything that's fun and good about the game and just the way he plays and how dynamic he is and how effective he is like i don't know it just seems like he'd be like the obvious choice i don't know yeah and and the the question there is is how many people want that there though right like i think fans we all want that right but like clearly there's a there's a contrast there between what you know, the audience at large will embrace and what people inside hockey will embrace. Mm. Yeah. Okay. Which is, which is a larger conversation in itself. Yes. Right. But like, I mean, Subban's Subban's going to be on E60 this Sunday on a yep. big special that they've spent like close to a year filming. I don't know if many other players are getting that kind of treatment. I mean, he's, he's the best. Like you mentioned that, uh, when he was on the Bill Simmons podcast, for example, just how well-spoken he is and just every, like every, like he's such a good ambassador for the game. And he was talking about potentially being a commissioner one day. And I'd, I'd love to yeah. see that happen. Like it just, he seems to have great ideas about the sport and where it should be headed and what they should be doing. And I'd like to hear and see more of that. And I think that that's the issue people really have with this league in terms of how it's not marketing and it's, it's stars and really taking advantage of how fun the product is right now. It's like, we never really get to see, uh, those types of personalities personalities just kind of fully out in the open just expressing themselves and i don't know i'd like to see more of that and i think a lot of other people would too but dancing is a distraction dimitri yeah yeah you don't want to be clowning around out there um okay uh pekka rene i mentioned him earlier i uh listen heading into the playoffs i feel like a lot of people myself included were pointing to him as the x factor and for negative reasons because it looked like <laughs> yeah. it looked like this predators team was uh you know destined for greatness they had no real flaws throughout their lineup but then you'd always kind of circle back to pecorine and go well the past two two years he's had a 909 and a 906 save percentage in their in their playoff runs and if he can't really hold up that's going to ultimately do them in because we know how uh reliant teams are on on goaltending play in in the, in the playoffs and i mean he has a 941 save percentage in these 16 games. So to say that uh, he's done his job would uh, would be not doing it justice. Obviously, like it's a, whether it can continue in this final series remains to be seen. But obviously, we need to give him some love here because he he has played uh, out of his mind so far. Totally, I, I think if before the playoffs, I mean, if you were to say who's the most likely candidate to get 
uh, like Mark Andre flurried, which is to say replaced by a, a younger guy who just gets hot. Like you probably say Pekka, right? I mean, you yep. see Soros has done a very good job this year. He's very clearly the goal of the goalie of the future there. Um, you know, whether they split a little bit more next year, or I think Pekka's contract has, has two more years or one more year. Um, so, I mean, Soros is clearly the guy they're moving forward. Um, but yeah, I mean, all, all credit to Pekka. I don't, it's, I think it's rare to, when you see a guy of, of this age with that kind of history, um, you know, you would expect that, uh, the way it's, things have trended in the past couple of years, that it might be a little tougher sledding for him. Um, but he's been incredible. I think he's he's their favorite for the Smythe at this point, um, unless you could give it to an entire top four defense, <laughs> um, which, you know, if you, uh, you can't give it an offensive line in football, as much fun as that would be. Um, so maybe a little similar. So, yeah, I, I think it, it goes to Pekka. Um, and I think down there, there's, there's just so much respect for a guy who's, um, you know, been around it and remembers – you know, he, he was around when the team was going to get sold. And, and, you know, he's he's been there. He's kind of the last uh, remaining link from the old guard, if you will, unless you count Vernon Fiddler. Um, you know, like I said, you know, the, the legendary story of Ray Shiro and, and Yanni Kekalainen going up into the hinterlands of, of Olu Finland and finding him in the sub-zero day and drafting him in the eighth round. It just kind of adds to a little bit of the aura around him. But, you know, he's also, like, legendary good dude, Pekarene, like, you know, one of the, along with Barry Trotz and, and Shea Weber, you know, one of the, I think, foremost advocates for best buddies down there and, you know, does things like lets UC Soros drive his car and stay in his house during the World Cup. And um, I think is very, very open about, you know, having a successor there and is very welcoming to him. Um, so I think there's a lot of just happiness down there for the way he's playing. But uh, uh, to say that anyone could have expected a 940 in the playoffs, no, 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 no. Well, it's it's funny how it's turned into sort of this like sticking point of like analytics versus old school. Or yeah, I don't, is it even an analytical thing to be like to have been skeptical of whether Rene would be able to hold up this postseason? Like it's just purely a a, a general save percentage thing where he hasn't been that good in their previous postseason runs, and his play has been on the downward swing for the past couple of years. And it was seemed like a fair question to raise. Beyond it wasn't like it wasn't um, it, it it's being uh, portrayed as this analytics thing, but I don't really think that that had anything to do with it at all. Yeah, and, and I mean, there have been a couple times where it seems like he's been caught a little bit out of posi- out of position um, and allowed for some some sort of easy backdoor tap-ins or, you know, maybe a soft goal from, I think, the Perry goal in Game game 3, was it, was a little soft. Uh, we're just kind of banked off him and, you know, and had another one go off his head in, in Game 6. Um, but, you know, the totality of the work has been has been stellar. Um, I mean, he's, he's uh, an engine back there as far as breaking the puck out with his puck handling skills, you know, when he's not playing it outside of the trapezoid and should have gotten a call. Hmm. Um, but I mean, he had, he has three assists, which I think is, is one short of the all time record, um, for a single postseason, at least since they started keeping that stat. Um, and yeah, I just, <laughs> I don't know whether it's, you know, voodoo or dipping in the fountain of, of, of youth or whatever, or it's probably just, uh, just a hot goalie getting hot. Um, but I mean, Nashville has done done a pretty good job of, of limiting shots, uh, and just because the possession's going the other way. Yep. Um, and I know that was an adjustment a little bit at first. That you know, when they were playing a little more of their their defensive style with the personnel they had under Barry, he was he was asked to do a, a lot more. Um, and you, you know, you heard that uh, here in DC with Holby that um, you know, in, in years past, that it, I mean, it's an adjustment to to go from getting a lot of work to getting not a lot of work. Cause it's hard to get in a rhythm or harder to get in a rhythm that way. Um, especially when you're someone who, who likes to be as active as Pekka is as far as, you know, being aggressive and, and handling the puck and, and, you know, coming out to challenge. And um, I was talking to, to Chris Mason, the former goalie and analyst for them. And, you know, he was saying that's that's what he's seen a little bit more in Pekka lately is, is a little bit more calmness, um, a little bit more willing to let the game come to him and just kind of stay back 
Um, and there've been a couple chances where I, I mean he's gotten he's gotten real deep and has been uh, real deep in his crease, and I think he's been very patient um, where the puck's been around the net, especially for as much as as, as Anaheim was you know trying to get in his grill and trying to trying to bump him and, and kind of throw him off there. Um, I think a lot of it uh, just kind of stems from that that serenity they seems to have. Um, and, you know, maybe the people in the organization say that's that's something that you know maybe was missing a little bit or, or at least you know took a little bit of an adjustment um, once Peter Laviolette came in and they started playing this way. Hmm. Well, I do think there's a little bit of a nice marriage going on here between his style and what the team in front of him is able to do. Where I mean, you mentioned uh, how you know active he likes to be and how aggressive he is, and I definitely think that at times, even when he's going really well and, and stopping a large percentage of shots, like you see that, especially as that Duck series went along, I thought he started getting a bit sloppier in terms of how far he was sliding out and losing his crease sometimes. And I think that the guys in front of him do a really good job of both clearing up rebounds and also preventing uh, a lot of that East-West action with passing for the other team. So, you know, sometimes, yeah. like, I think it, it was the first goal, I believe, that the Ducks scored in that game six where uh, Rene just completely slid out, slid out and Getzlaff was able to just pass it across his body for a wide-open tap into Andre Kasha. And, and you yeah. you know, that's when Pekka Rene is not going well, that's what you see a lot of, but it feels like he's been able to limit that a little bit and the team in front of him has done a good job of helping him out when he has. So it's it's all worked out and uh, you know, can't complain about a 941 regardless of how he's get it, getting it done. Um, one final thing before we get out of here. Mm-hmm. Uh, Philip Forsberg. Are we <laughs> are we ever going to reach a point uh, where the first thing people respond with when you say something about him isn't some sort of Martin Erat-related quip? I was thinking about that just from a DC perspective. Like, How much of that do you think is people kind of getting getting their pleasure from needling Washington a little bit for making that move. Yeah. Cause I mean, you, you, you look at it and you project on the line, like, okay, they have, let's say they have Forsberg. Let's say Forsberg became what he became. Let's say you have to start paying him 6 million. Do you make the move for Oshie for instance? Maybe. Cause I, I think they wanted to move on from Brower, but uh, do you bring Justin Williams in? Like, I don't know. How does the complexion of the team change? Um, obviously it's a, it's a massively one-sided trade. It was a fleecing, um, but I, I was just curious, you know, how, how much from a national perspective you think people might just be getting a little pre- pleasure out of out of needling Washington for just kind of like one more thing that like now now he's in the final two. Yeah, no, well, it's it's funny how it works. I mean, obviously, so much of it is uh, hindsight. I mean, at the time, like I was pretty clearly uh, thought it was a ill-advised trade from Washington's perspective because even though there were some mixed feelings on Philip Forbes like, as a prospect, uh, considering we still hadn't really seen him at the NHL level, it's seemed like a very kind of reactionary panic move by on George McPhee's part. But at the same time, like I look at a team like Ottawa, for example, right now, and we'll see how this game seven winds up playing out for them. But, you know, they made a sort of similar, maybe less impactful trade where they traded away a, to- uh, a really good prospect in Jonathan Dolan for uh, Alex Burroughs. And they made a couple of those trades where they were just trying to get guys to come in and help out and, and patch up their bottom six. And all of a sudden that really elevated the team's performance. And, you know, now they're making this uh, impressive playoff run and you just never really know how uh, the postseason is going to wind up shaking out or what's going to happen. And I, I feel like sometimes we do take it a little bit for granted or just assume the prospects are always going to pan out and reach their ceiling and uh, overlook the fact that you know winning games is ultimately the most important thing and if you have a chance to compete right now you should probably try to do so so you know it didn't wind up working out for them and I still think it was a, a bad trade even even without the benefit of hindsight but like it, you do need to keep a little bit out of that perspective sometimes with this sort of stuff yeah totally um I from what I remember I mean I think the reaction was like okay like getting Erad and Lada fine not for Forsberg right 
Like that, it was it was the fact that it was this guy that they were giving up, and and clearly it's come, it's gonna it's gonna haunt people as far as long as they keep bringing it up. Um, but I mean, I know you're you're a huge fan of the Phil Forsberg Creative Zone Entry Club. Oh my goodness, he's a wizard out there in the neutral zone. It's um, amazing. I mean the 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 Auburn goal, Aberg, whatever. God, I, I, Pontius, Pontius's goal. Yes. Um, in the third period of of game six, I mean Forsberg, he's on one hand is chipping it to himself off you know he just kind of nudges the puck ahead and chips it into the glass like he's i don't know like a a casino worker like shoveling chips or something and then goes and gets it and disrupts lindholm is able to kind of you know hip check lindholm a little bit and disrupt him off the puck and that starts the entire goal and it's just because he he is so good at like you said getting through the neutral zone and then being able to in creative ways get that get that puck deep you know without giving it up without a hard rim without you know uh giving up possession um, and then just kind of go hunt it down. I think there was that that cutback move, and maybe it was in game five or something, um, where he beat someone wide, and then just kind of. I think you tweeted about this, right? That he it was the way he cut back in the middle and then kicked the puck to himself in front of Gibson to deke him out. And you know, he didn't score, but you're watching and you're like, how does this happen at that kind of speed and that kind of traffic? Yeah, it's a combination of a bunch of different skills, but like you know, a guy like I wrote earlier this season about Artemi Panarin, for example, and he does this remarkably well where he seems, uh, you know, he has the ability to do so, but he also has the mentality or the mind, the creative mindset to uh, sort of see stuff other people don't when he has the puck. So he just kind of tosses the puck gently to an open space and then goes and gets it. And he either, yep. uh, the defender basically, because he's following the play, either has to, you know, hook him and take him down and go to the box for two minutes or just let him go by and, and give him the advantage. And you see a lot of that with Forsberg where he puts defenders in such uh, compromising positions just by seeing stuff they're not necessarily capable of seeing at that quick of a speed and then just going and getting the puck and doing something with it. And he's been remarkable to watch and so productive. And it's uh, it's, it's scary to just look at you know how old he is right now and, and to project that he could conceivably keep getting better and just what that's going to look like when he does reach that level. Oh, I mean you have a top line for the next six, however many years of, of Forsberg, Arvidsson, Johansson, I think whether they're 22, 24 and 24 yep. and their back ends all under contract next year. I mean, they're, they're going to roll it back and they're going to roll it back really well. I think. And even if Rene falls apart or, or stops playing well, you know, we mentioned UC sorrow seems like he's like probably the best, uh, the best current NHL goalie prospect. That's not, you know, playing full-time in the league i mean he, he was their backup this year but he's not he hasn't taken the job for himself yet and it seems like he's going to be perfectly capable of doing that as well so there's really no holes on this team moving forward which makes you know you, you don't want to take this uh take this run for granted because there can be injuries and unforeseen events and you know guys can all of a sudden just stop playing as well as they've played so far but at the same time they do seem as well positioned as we've seen a team in, in a number of years yeah and if you're going to trust a gm to maybe patch up some holes in the uh, in your forward core as well um, and get a little secondary scoring. I think you probably put a little faith in David Boyle. Yeah, yeah. I, uh, that's a good way to uh, to tie this conversation full circle, man. You're, this is why you're a professional. Well, that's a little. <laughs> I don't know about that. but uh, Are you are you working on uh, working on any stuff that you can share with, with the listeners or is it all top secret until you finally release it? No, just just waiting for the cup final, to be honest. Um, just just trying to see who comes out tonight, and then uh, then we'll mobilize. And you know things are things are a little funky with with magazine deadline schedules, so I'm just kind of floating here and there. And um, my liver's gearing up for games three and four in Nashville, and uh, we'll see what happens. I uh, spent all of yesterday shelling out way too much money for an emergency passport because someone stole my other one. So I'm, which pretty much guarantees I think that Pittsburgh's going to win tonight. Right. Um, so you know. 
that's I guess that was a, a reverse jinx in that way. But right. I, I don't know. I'm, I'm I'm curious to see who comes out of that game. Uh, Storylines, I'm sure will abound. Like we said, whether it's um, you know whether it's Pittsburgh's forwards versus National D, or whether it's like the high flying Preds versus the the boring one through one trap. Well. Keep up the great work, man. I honestly, uh, I'm not, I'm not saying this just to butter you up. I mean, you've already been on the show, so it, it doesn't matter at this point. But uh, <laughs> yeah, I, 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 I rarely say this. I rarely share other people's work. But whenever you put something out there, I, uh, I feel obligated to to get as many eyeballs on it as I can because just the way you you spin a story with your words and paint the picture is uh, is remarkable in my opinion. So I'm really glad you uh, you came on the show and took the time to uh, to chat and uh, keep up the good work. Appreciate that, man. I, I'm sure that that everyone has turned this off by now because they're bored of me. Um, but for those who have gotten the end, uh, thank you for that praise. All right, we'll talk soon. See you, bud. The Hockey PDO Cast with Dmitri Filipovich. Follow on Twitter at Dim Filipovich and on SoundCloud at soundcloud.com/slash Hockey PDO Cast. <laughs>